0: the news magazine on the America Out Loud Network. I'm Alana Friedman and this is the Friedman Report. Life is an endless series of stories told together and separately. Some of them touch our lives briefly and then move on. Some of them only pass by without a whisper and we may never know about them. My job, as I see it, is to tell some of these stories and try to make sense of them as they touch our lives. Welcome to News Magazine on the America Out Loud Network. I'm Alana Friedman, and this is the Friedman Report. Let's take a look at some of the stories that made the headlines this week. On Monday, America observed Veterans Day. That's the day that we take time out and pay our respects to the men and women in uniform who devote their lives, who often risk their lives as part of their job, and all too often they lose their lives for us so that we can remain safe and live our lives as free people. Have you ever wondered what it is like to have someone, a complete stranger, come up to you and say, Thank you for your service. Here's one veteran's opinion, a man whose work for America continued long after he has retired from the military. He's my friend Joe. He was talking about just that, when people he doesn't know come up to him and thank him for his service. He said, I think it is a worthwhile gesture and I always appreciate when people I don't know say it to me. It's quite a welcome contrast from Vietnam days, a time when wearing a uniform or any other evidence of military service in public was met with insults and demonization, One of the things I remember from younger days was standing up with my class in school every morning, facing the flag in the front corner of the classroom, putting my hand over my heart, And reciting the Pledge of Allegiance in unison. In 1954, President Dwight D. Eisenhower urged Congress to add the words under God to the pledge. And that is how it's recited today. And good for him and good for us that we do it. So, in honor of Veterans Day, even though it occurred on Monday, and because I believe that we should honor our veterans every day. I'd like to share with you a brief explanation from a famous comedian, Red Skelton. It was recorded on January 14th, 1969, but it is a speech that he memorized as a child given by his teacher that he carried with him all his life. And you know what? It's just as meaningful today as it was then. Now, in this recording, he's speaking to a live audience. And because he's a comedian, sometimes they laugh. But once he started his explanation about the Pledge of Allegiance, there was no laughter, only respect. And here it is.
1: I remember a teacher that I had. Now, I only, I went, I went through the seventh grade. I went to the seventh grade. I left home when I was 10 years old because I was hungry. And I used to, this is, this is true, i work in the summer and i go to school in the winter. But I had this one teacher. He was the principal of the Harrison School in Vincennes, Indiana. To me, this was the greatest teacher, a real sage of, of my time, anyhow. He had such wisdom. And we were all reciting the Pledge of Allegiance one day. And he walked over, this little old teacher, Mr. Lasswell was his name. Mr. Laswell, he says, I've been listening to you boys and girls recite the Pledge of Allegiance all semester, and it seems as though it's becoming monotonous to you. If I may, may I recite it and try to explain to you the meaning of each word? I, me, an individual, a committee of one, pledge... Dedicate all of my worldly goods to give without self-pity. Allegiance, my love and my devotion to the flag, our standard, O glory, a symbol of freedom. Wherever she waves, there's respect, because your loyalty has given her a dignity that shouts freedom is everybody's job. United, that means that we have all come together. States, individual communities that have united into 48 great states, 48 individual communities with pride and dignity and purpose, all divided with imaginary boundaries yet united to a common purpose, and that's love for country and to the republic. Republic a state in which sovereign power is invested in representative chosen by the people to govern and government is the people and it's from the people to the leaders not from the leaders to the people For which it stands one nation One nation meaning so blessed by God Indivisible Incapable of being divided. With liberty, which is freedom, the right of power to live one's own life without threats, fear, or some sort of retaliation. And justice, the principle or qualities of dealing fairly with others, for all, for all. Which means, boys and girls, It's as much your country as it is mine. And now, boys and girls, let me hear you recite the Pledge of Allegiance. I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the republic for which it stands, one nation, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. Since I was a small boy, two states have been added to our country and two words have been added to the Pledge of Allegiance under God. Wouldn't it be a pity if someone said that is a prayer and that would be eliminated from schools too?
0: And so, my friends, Although this year's Veterans Day has come and gone, I hope that you, like me, will think of our veterans every day and continue to thank them for their service, wherever your paths may cross. They are the ones who have helped to keep us a free people in a country where freedom is still worth protecting and still worth fighting for. On a different subject, let's talk for a minute about the impeachment debacle that is taking place in Washington. It's actually relevant because this is something that threatens our freedom. It threatens everything that we have held dear for generations, for centuries, that is so special about America. This past Saturday, Congressman Devin Nunes, the top Republican on the House Intelligence Committee, presented a list to House Intelligence Committee Chairman Adam Schiff. It was a list of people the Republicans want to interview in the open impeachment hearings that have begun this week. Until now, only the Democrats have been able to decide who will be interviewed And in their quest to find the high crimes and misdemeanors that would implicate the president in their impeachment investigation, they have refused to allow Republicans to subpoena anybody or to interview anybody in a public forum. Everything has been done secretly and in private in the deep, dark recesses of a secret room in the Capitol building. So. They have been looking for these high crimes and misdemeanors, and now that the hearings will be conducted in public instead of in Schiff's secret kangaroo court, the Republicans are demanding the right to call their own witnesses to testify. So we have to wait and see how that's going to play out. But with barely a moment's hesitation after he received the list, Adam Schiff rejected two of the requests out of hand. Hunter Biden, and the anonymous whistleblower. Of course, by now we all know who that is, and we even know his name. But Schiff promised to protect him and not reveal his identity. He will no doubt reveal it himself at a time he sees fit, but it's altogether just theater. Since the whistleblower was outed at least two weeks ago, I'm sure Schiff believes that this will somehow show that he's a man of integrity. Although I think he lost that battle a long time ago. Anyway, all this theater, as you know, revolves around the complaint about President Trump's phone call in July with Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky, which the Democrats quickly latched onto after the Mueller report failed to produce their desired results of finding Trump guilty of anything. In his effort to bring Biden the younger and the whistleblower to Capitol Hill, Nunes was aiming, he said, to treat Trump with more fairness during the investigation. But Schiff made his own point very, very clear. He said, the committee will neither facilitate efforts to threaten, intimidate, and retaliate against the whistleblower, nor serve as a vehicle to undertake the sham investigation into the Bidens, unquote. Wait a minute. The investigations into the Bidens are hardly a sham. Joe Biden himself admitted to using the power of his position when he was vice president to protect his son, Hunter, from further investigation by a prosecutor in Ukraine. Joe Biden bragged on camera when he gave a speech to the Council on Foreign Relations about how he had used his power to have the prosecutor fired. And he threatened to withhold a billion-dollar U.S. loan guarantee from Ukraine if they did not fire him. You don't have to believe me. Here's what Joe Biden said on January 23rd, 2018, less than a year ago. He said, quote, I remember going over, convincing our team, our leaders, to convincing that we should be providing For loan guarantees. And I went over, I guess, the 12th, 13th time to Kiev, and I was supposed to announce that there was another billion-dollar loan guarantee. And I had gotten a commitment that they would take action against the state prosecutor, and they didn't. They were walking out to a press conference. I said, nah, I'm not going to, or we're not going to give you the billion dollars. They said, you have no authority. You're not the president. The president said, I said, call him. I said, I'm telling you, you're not getting the billion dollars. I said, you're not getting the billion. I'm going to be leaving here in, I think it was about six hours. I looked at them and said, I'm leaving in six hours. If the prosecutor is not fired, you're not getting the money. Well, son of a bitch, he got fired. And they put in place someone who was solid at the time. Unquote. Solid in this context meant corrupt. Someone who would bend to their wishes. Okay. This, my friends, is quid pro quo. He said, you fire the prosecutor within the next six hours, or you will not get your money. Simple. Quid. Fire the prosecutor pro quo. You will not get the money. That's easy. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Isn't this exactly what the Democrats are accusing Trump of doing? They are saying that he used the authority of his office to pressure the newly elected Ukrainian president, Volodymyr Zelensky, to investigate the gas company, Burisma. That was the company on whose board Hunter Biden sat, and for which he got a huge salary, although he had no background in the industry or the technology. What they paid for, and what they knew they were paying for, was access. And Biden Sr. was using his authority as vice president of the United States to influence a foreign government on behalf of his son. What Joe Biden did for his son was the definition of abuse of power. It was quid pro quo, plain and simple, and it was obvious, period. Joe Biden did that. President Trump did not. So the Democrats are accusing the president of doing something that their own vice president did. That's called projection. What Biden did when he was vice president was, by definition, corrupt and should have been prosecuted. Joe Biden should have been impeached for abuse of power. But here's the thing. He's no longer vice president. He's a candidate for president in the next election. So the Democrats are now saying that Donald Trump was trying to interfere with the next election by asking the president of another country to investigate Biden the candidate. And here's my question. If a person runs for public office, including the presidency, does that make him immune to criticism and even prosecution for past crimes? And my answer is no, absolutely not. Biden is guilty as hell, and he admitted it on camera. So where is the justice here? Schiff did say, however, that the committee is reviewing the other possible witnesses proposed by Nunes, and we'll see. But in the meantime, nothing has been done in Congress. Nancy Pelosi has even put a roadblock in front of the vote for the USMCA, the U.S.-Mexico-Canada trade deal, that would help nearly every sector of our economy. It would help if the Republicans were ready to rise to the occasion and demand action in Congress on the agreement What is the point of holding the country hostage in order to carry out a political witch hunt? On next week's Friedman Report, I will bring you a full analysis of what has occurred in the hearings and what we can expect to see happening as they move forward. In the meantime, I will take a short break, but I'll be right back with more of the Friedman Report. I wanna talk about some of the news that's making headlines from around the world. Some of it's pretty disturbing, but all of it is stuff we need to know. So stay tuned, I'll be right back.
2: Hello, this is Lieutenant Randy Sutton, the host of Blue Lives Radio, the voice of American law enforcement. I am a 34-year police veteran. I am also the founder and CEO of an organization that stands behind injured and disabled law enforcement officers. It is called The Wounded Blue. Our website is thewoundedblue.org. We have produced a film. It is an important film. I urge you to watch it. The film details what happens when a police officer or law enforcement officer is shot or stabbed or beaten or disabled seriously injured in the line of duty. Most people think they are taken care of medically and financially. The reality may be quite different. It is called The Wounded Blue, Service, Sacrifice, Betrayed. The film is available on Amazon, iTunes, and the Microsoft Store.
0: Welcome back to the Friedman Report. Let's take a look at the world this week. What were some of the key events that took place in other parts of the world. While we've been busy at home watching the Washington politicians do their thing, the rest of the world has also been busy. So let's start um, with Iran. Iran made big headlines this week because they announced that they have begun injecting uranium hexafluoride gas into the centrifuges at the Fordow Enrichment Plant and there are over a thousand of them. So what does that mean? It means that what was supposed to be a, quote, research facility, unquote, it's now going to be a full-fledged nuclear plant, and one that enriches nuclear fuel at a greater level than would ever be needed for generating electricity for the country. So the next arms race is on. Now, those of you who have heard me talk about this before, or if you've read my current article on the America Out Loud website, the article is called, by the way, Iran is preparing for nuclear war, can they be stopped? You know that I don't think Iran is indulging in wishful thinking when they talk about nuclear power. Because if my sources are accurate, and they invariably are, Iran already has a nuclear capability. They developed it in collaboration with North Korea, where they both benefited from the partnership. The end result was a nuclear warhead that had been miniaturized to fit on a slim missile and the delivery system to deploy it. Iran's presence in North Korea went largely unnoticed by the rest of the world, and so the work went on without interference. So now both Iran and North Korea have nuclear weapons. Japan confirmed three months ago that Kim Jong-un has nuclear weapons, which reconfirmed the findings that were reported in a white paper released by South Korea last year and several articles that I wrote on the subject beginning in January 2014. But it's Iran that we're talking about right now, not North Korea because while North Korea is bragging a bit about what it has accomplished, Iran is actually rattling its sabers and making the rest of the world very, very nervous. So it is Iran that seems to be trying to figure out what to do next. What we know is that they are openly developing their nuclear capability, although they are denying that they're interested in nuclear weapons. In fact, Iran's foreign minister, Javad Zarif said only a few months ago that Iran is not interested in nuclear weapons. In a tweet dated May 27th, he said, Iran's supreme leader, Ayatollah Ali Khamenei, long ago said we were not seeking nuclear weapons by issuing a fatwa banning them. Unquote. And yet it seems they already have that capability despite the fatwa. Oh, uh, by the way, a fatwa is a religious edict in Islam. Remember that this is the Middle East and that things there are often not what they seem. They do not think the way we do. They do not behave the way we do. And most important, they do not respond to the world as we do. So what might seem logical to a Western mind may be totally illogical in the Middle East. And that brings us to the question how do we know what to expect? Well, a lot of good minds are trying to figure that out. Iran is developing its nuclear program, that's clear. Its leaders are threatening the United States and Israel, as well as their Muslim neighbors. And they have been inflaming conflicts throughout the region in places like Iraq, Yemen, and Saudi Arabia. While North Korea has been flaunting its nuclear capabilities to the extent, That they were identified by their neighbors, Iran has been far more secretive, and maybe this makes it far more dangerous since the world has no real idea what to expect. So you may ask me this, if Iran already has nuclear weapon, what are they waiting for? And that's a very good question, and I'm not sure I have a very good answer. I'm not sure if they do. Right now, Iran is a very complicated place. It's ruled by the mullahs and their leader, the Ayatollah Khamenei. Those so-called holy men are protected by the elite Islamic Republican Guard Corps, known as the IRGC, whose leader, General Salami, reports directly to the Ayatollah and whose men will protect the Ayatollah if there is ever a coup. They are also the ones who carry out the special missions, including the bombing and hijacking of tankers in the Strait of Hormuz and the shooting down of an American drone last summer. And when the so-called civil war broke out in Syria, Iran immediately sent 500 IRGC fighters to protect Syria's president, Bashar Assad. But Iran is bordering on instability. The economic situation in Iran is dire as a result of the severe sanctions that President Trump placed on its oil exports. The economy is crumbling. The rial is continuing to devalue and the price of basic goods and food are spiraling out of control. The Iranian people are suffering and anti-austerity demonstrations are popping up all over the country. The regular army, that's not the IRGC, but the soldiers in the regular army are also getting restless. It has been rumored that they have not been paid their wages for several months and they are not being fed. The Ayatollah may well be afraid of a possible coup against him. So as things stand now, there are major concerns that Iran will launch an attack possibly against Israel, but maybe against Saudi Arabia or the Arab Emirates or American interests in the very near future, and it may be a nuclear attack. The Iranian leadership is unpredictable. They're willing to sacrifice their own people for the benefit of the great ambitions that they have and the certainty of their religious mission to rule the world and establish the kingdom of Islam everywhere. In short, if Iran has the power and the will to destabilize that part of the world, the repercussions will reverberate all around the globe. We cannot know what they will do next, but we do know that whatever they are planning, we had better be ready for it. Now let's move to a place we've been watching for the better part of six months, Hong Kong. And the situation there has been deteriorating rapidly as well. When the original demonstrations erupted six months ago, the atmosphere was one of hope and affirmation. The Chinese-appointed government was preparing to pass a bill that would allow extradition of Hong Kong citizens to China, where they would receive what passes for justice on the mainland. But the people of Hong Kong had lived all their lives in a free market society and a free society. And this bill was symbolic of the slow erosion of their rights and autonomy by China. And they did not like it. So, when they began demonstrating against it, although the demonstrations were huge, they were above all peaceful. But by the time China was ready to give in on several points, it was already too late. Because the people of Hong Kong were already calling for more democracy, more freedom and greater police accountability. So over time, the police began showing more and more force, and the demonstrations grew more and more violent. Last week, a group of seven pro-democracy lawmakers were arrested. Then on Friday, a 22-year-old computer student who was participating in the demonstration fell to his death from a parking garage after the police fired tear gas at the building. His death triggered a new round of increasingly fierce demonstrations, and over the weekend, all hell broke loose. A policeman fired several shots at a demonstrator who was now in the hospital in critical condition. In another incident, a man was doused with flammable liquid and set on fire. He, too, was in critical condition. Over the last week alone, 266 protesters were arrested. One was killed. If you try to understand the dynamics of these demonstrations, it is important to remember that they began as peaceful marches. Hundreds of thousands of Hong Kong residents participated. But as the police became increasingly involved, the demonstrations turned increasingly violent. The heavily armed police have been accused of brutality and using undue force against unarmed civilians. But a larger question remains. Will the Chinese government troops descend on Hong Kong in force? And will they bring a more brutal end to the demonstrations which have forced this once vital city into an economic decline? It's doubtful, you know, that in light of the ongoing trade talks between the United States and China, that the Chinese government would want to create a situation that would force Trump to withdraw from the talks. And an educated guess would suggest that another Tiananmen Square assault on unarmed citizen demonstrators could certainly blow up a successful conclusion to the talks. China really wants this deal. They need the soy and corn particularly the soy, that America can provide. And they have put down the number of $50 billion worth of agricultural products as part of the first phase of this deal. We've talked before in another show about why they need this, because, because of the fall armyworm, which devoured a huge portion of China's crops last summer and threatened to do the same next summer. So the agricultural component of this deal is essential for China during the coming winter when they will desperately need food to feed their huge population. So there's one more story that I must tell you because it may be a precursor of what may be unfolding soon. As you know, Israel has been caught between the threats from Iran, which I talked about before, and the threats from Hamas in Gaza and Hezbollah in Lebanon. What I didn't mention was a smaller but no less dangerous player in Gaza, which is the Palestine Islamic Jihad, or PIJ. The PIJ has been named a terrorist organization not only by the U.S. and Israel but also by the European Union, the United Kingdom, Canada, Japan, Australia, and New Zealand. Its terrorist activity have included suicide bombings and other kinds of attacks on Israeli civilians. They've also been firing rockets into Israel in great numbers. And interesting to note, the PIJ is largely funded by Iran. Well, last week, Israeli intelligence found beyond a doubt that the PIJ has been planning another attack and it's imminent. So on Monday night, Israel carried out a targeted bombing raid on the home of the PIJ leader, Baha Abu Alata. His house was bombed in what is known as a surgical strike. That means that only the house itself was bombed and the houses on either side of his were largely untouched. Both Abu al-Ata and his wife were killed in the raid. In order to protect himself, Abu al-Ata tended to surround himself with civilians who were uninvolved with PIJ activities. But at 4 a.m., when everyone had finally gone home, that opportunity to strike him was identified and the Israeli Air Force attacked the room, when I told you it was targeted, targeted very closely, they attacked from the air the room that the terrorist known as the commander of the Northern Brigade in Gaza was in, where he and his wife were sleeping. Abu al-Atta was considered by the Israelis to be a ticking time bomb. He was directly responsible for terrorist attacks against Israeli civilians and IDF soldiers. His organization, which was founded in 1981, had an objective that was plain and simple. It was the destruction of the State of Israel and the establishment of a sovereign Palestinian state governed under Sharia. So now Israel, having carried out this, what is essentially an assassination, has warned the Israeli population of a series of expected retaliatory attacks. And the Israelis didn't have long to wait. By 10 o'clock on Tuesday morning, more than 150 rockets had been fired from Gaza into Israel's populated centers. Now, it may seem unreasonable for the people of Gaza, for the PIJ, who just lost their leader, not to respond with anger and violence. And it may seem that Israel acted very aggressively and without justification. But consider this. The IDF believes that Abu al-Ata may have been personally responsible for planning and ordering the majority of all terror attacks on Israel over the past 12 months. And as far as they were concerned, he needed to be taken out. Their job is to protect the Israeli people and the country that they live in. U.S. ambassador to Israel David Friedman, who is about to retire, made this comment. Quote, Palestinian Islamic Jihad, an Islamic terror organization backed by Iran, is again attacking Israel with a hundred percent of missiles aimed at civilians. We stand with our friend and ally Israel at this critical moment, and we support Israel's right to defend itself and bring an end to these barbaric attacks." It's difficult to explain what it's like to live under the fear that a rocket will come out of nowhere, out of the sky, into your neighborhood. Israelis have lived with this great burden for over 70 years. This is a story that I want to tell you on another day, how the Israelis meet that challenge. And in fact, if you've been listening for a while, you've met Greg, my friend Greg, who sometimes comes to tell stories, but I'd like to invite him to come and tell us about what it's like to be in the Israeli army. What are some of the rules that soldiers have to abide by that may be very difficult indeed, and what the total experience is like years later. Well, I'm going to take another quick break now, but I'll be back with my favorite part of the show. I've got some stories, more than one this week, and I really hope I can get you to laugh or groan or sigh because this part of the show is called you just can't make this stuff up. See you in a minute.
1: As we say, let the silent voices be heard. Shadow banning, editing, censorship, blocking, and adherence to political correctness are seen as serious threats to our God-given right to free speech. Suppressing free speech, the very cornerstone of our society, is not in the best interest of our listeners, readers, and those who provide our content. Welcome to the new era in communications, America Out Loud Talk Radio.
3: Think back to the last time you felt healthy and energized. The best times of our lives occur when we're at the peak of our health
0: We have come to my favorite part of the show. You know, the world is full of craziness and there are crazy people doing crazy things. But some of this craziness is just too funny or too silly or too ridiculous or just too unbelievable to ignore. So for the last few weeks, I've added a section to the Friedman Report. To memorialize the crazy things that people do, and I call this part, you just can't make this stuff up. About 18 months ago, California passed a bill called Proposition 47. Among other things, it reduced the penalty for shoplifting from a felony to a misdemeanor with no jail time for the perpetrator if... The value of what is stolen is less than $950. The new law means, in real life terms, that the thief will not be followed or apprehended by law enforcement. So, guess what happened next? According to the Los Angeles Police Department, shoplifting reports went up by 25% in the first year after the bill was signed. Well, why not? You know, if you listen to my show on a regular basis, you know that California is a frequent target of mine, mostly because of the sheer madness of the laws that California are willing to pass and the exorbitant taxes they seem to be willing to pay. Do you know what you can buy for $950? What the passage of Prop 47 means is that such thefts in broad daylight can mean the loss to store owners of such items as, let's see, designer clothes, computers, TVs, drones, and much more. Now, if you're a big national company like Safeway, Target, Rite Aid, and CVS Pharmacies, for example, maybe you can absorb the losses that result from shoplifters although I don't know that any company can absorb the theft of, say, 15% of their revenues over time, and in some cases double that amount on a regular basis. And in addition to all that, there have been indications of organized shoplifting rings who found that this law was absolutely ideal for what they wanted to do. They recruit society's most vulnerable, the homeless, to actually do the stealing, but they make the profits. So, no doubt the framers of the law didn't account for organized crime rings to take advantage of Prop 47. Or maybe they just didn't care. But who really suffers the most? Not the big box stores. It's the little store owners, shopkeepers, whose only livelihood comes from the sale of goods from their single, standalone shops. And by the way, in California... This is just the tip of the iceberg. Just this week, a man was arrested for eating a breakfast sandwich on the BART platform, which he had bought from a kiosk on the BART platform. BART, by the way, stands for the Bay Area Rapid Transit System, which means that this was in San Francisco. Now, the cop came over to him, And when he protested, he was handcuffed and threatened with imprisonment for eating a sandwich. According to witnesses, there are no signs on the platform that say eating there is illegal. But the cop stopped him anyway and told him he was breaking the law. And when he argued, my gosh, who wouldn't? The cop told him, you're being detained and you are not free to go. In the end, he put him in handcuffs And gave him a citation. So consider this, okay? Eating on a subway platform can get you arrested in California, but stealing a high-tech drone from a mom-and-pop store won't. I wonder if the sandwich eater could have gotten off by saying he had stolen it. Well, I have one more, and this is, well, it's just as hard to believe as any of the others, I guess. San Francisco has a new district attorney. Chesa Budin, I think that's how he pronounces his name, declared his victory on Saturday night after running on a platform that went something like this, and I quote, quote, we will not prosecute cases involving quality of life crimes. Crimes such as public camping, offering or soliciting sex, public urination, blocking a sidewalk, etc., should not and will not be prosecuted. Then he went on to say something so heart-wrenching. We have a long way to go to decriminalize poverty and homelessness. Unquote. Wow. What a platform. You know, San Francisco has been getting a bad reputation for its poopy streets. That's human waste deposited on the sidewalks and left to foul the neighborhoods. They actually keep records of this now. Did you know that since 2011, there have been 118,352 cases of human fecal matter, otherwise known as poop, recorded in San Francisco. Did you know that? And in the fiscal year of 2017-2018, the city paid $54 million to clean the streets of human waste, discarded needles, and all manner of trash and garbage. And they spent all that taxpayer money without actually doing anything To solve the homeless problem that has turned this once beautiful city into an open sewer. Friends, you just can't make this stuff up. (laughs) I couldn't believe it when I read it. It's disgusting to think about it. But there you are. Welcome to California, the Golden State. All right. Now, I usually just have one or two stories that I I bring to you on this section, but I'm on a roll, so I'm going to bring you a couple more, and I hope you'll put up with me because I'm having such a good time. Two men, both 21 years old who should have known better, now face charges of ridicule, quote, on account of race, color, or creed, unquote, which is apparently illegal in Vernon, Connecticut. They were seen on social media shouting vulgar names in an apartment parking lot. They claimed that they were, quote, playing a game, unquote, that involved yelling vulgar words. That's the game, I guess. But in their list of vulgar words, they included the N-word. And that's what got them arrested. What happened to free speech? What happened to the right to be stupid? Were they being rude and offensive? Of course they were. But is that illegal or just dumb? And then, here's another one. In Des Moines, Iowa, a man walked up to a gay bar at 5 o'clock in the morning and tried to burn the LBGTQ rainbow flag hanging in front of the bar. Only here's the thing. The flag was made of nylon, and it refused to burn. So he tried and he tried, and when he couldn't set it ablaze, he tore it down, and then somehow he got it to burn a little bit in a pile on the sidewalk. Hey, but here's the kicker. Not surprisingly, a surveillance camera caught it all, including a good view of his face. And speaking of faces, he now faces up to 15 years in jail for being stupid. I wish, I wish that I could say that these were not true stories. But you know, my friends, you just can't make this stuff up. And this, of course, brings me to the real question, which is a little more serious. What is making people so intolerant and so angry and what are they so angry about? And that's what I want to talk about in this last portion of the Friedman Report. What has caused this total degradation of manners in this country? Why are Americans, not all of them, but far too many of them, why are they so intolerant of opinions that don't agree with their own, that they are willing to deprive others of the rights that they demand for themselves, like freedom of speech, for example. Freedom to visit a restaurant of their choice and freedom to enjoy their meal without being harassed. Freedom to wear what they want. And yes, even if it is a red hat, and even if it does have the slogan, make America great again, a red hat ought not to be a trigger. And snowflakes shouldn't need to find a safe space every time they see one. And more important, here's think of this. They shouldn't be excused for intolerance and violence just because someone doesn't agree with them. Maybe the person who needs to rethink all this is the one who is uncivil, is the one who is challenging free speech and freedom of assembly. Maybe. You know, when I was a kid, we used to say, Your freedom ends where my nose begins. Do you remember that? And good sportsmanship? We used to learn that at home and at school. Be a good sport, my dad used to say to me. Well, it seems that we've lost the ability to even be sportsmanlike, no less to teach that to our children. But recently, this lack of civility has gotten much worse. Rudeness has turned into violence. Violence of the nastiest kind. And it's not only about opinion. In Texas, for example, just this week, a cashier began throwing trays at a customer at Popeye's. And the customer threw trays right back at her. Another employee of a fast food restaurant followed a customer outside when she questioned a bill for a meal. And this employee body slammed the customer onto the ground. The customer ended up with a couple of broken ribs and some broken bones. Honestly. And, of course, the employee got fired. Well, yeah, she should go to jail. I don't know what triggered those attacks, but as violent as they were, they were less violent than one that happened in Maryland at another Popeye's where there was a line of people, everyone waiting for the restaurant's now infamous chicken sandwich. One man cut into the line and another customer stabbed him to death. To death over a chicken sandwich. There is an emergency brewing in this country and it is becoming an epidemic, a plague. It has somehow become okay to talk about violence against each other as a thing that is acceptable, acceptable in our society today? Is it the violent movies that we watch and the video games that we play that twists our perceptions and our values? Is it the language that used to be forbidden and now we hear everywhere, even from politicians who want to be president? Instead of setting an example for us, They actually encourage us to confront each other with hostility and raw, unfiltered swear words. Was it okay for Maxine Waters to tell her constituents to get into the faces of people who support the President of the United States, our president, her president, to confront them, quote, wherever they are, unquote, and tell them, you're not welcome here. Not welcome here? How dare she? When Kathy Griffin appeared in a photo holding up what was intended to look like the severed and bloody head of President Donald Trump, that was back in 2017, she thought it was funny. But was it okay? She said it wasn't illegal, and she may be right. But it was not okay. And when in a speech that began... I want to start a revolution of love. Madonna then said, yes, I'm angry. Yes, I am outraged. Yes, I have thought an awful lot about blowing up the White House. What was that about? Was that okay? No, that was not okay then, and it's not okay now. You know, you've heard me talk about this a lot because it's important, this hate. This penchant for violence against people whose only crime was to disagree with us. It's becoming a disease, a plague, that is infecting our lives as Americans and destroying the values that we have always respected until now and that have been an example for the rest of the world. And as we look at the rest of the world and we see the civil unrest and discord in Europe and Asia, in the Middle East and South America, What we are really seeing is that instead of them becoming more like us, we are becoming more like them. And somehow, we need to turn that back around. You know, over the next few weeks, we will be seeing the release of two critical reports. The Horowitz report on his investigation into the FBI's probe into President Trump's campaign, and the Durham report from the Justice Department, and their investigation into the Russian collusion hoax and how it all began. It has been suggested that both reports are likely to contain criminal referrals for people whose names we all know. And both reports are likely to stir uneasiness or worse among the people who will be most affected by the conclusions of the reports. You know, the public hearings on the so-called impeachment investigation are going to be very revealing. What we're going to see is going to be very unnerving for many people. Horowitz says that criminal referrals are likely from his report. Durham has said something similar. We are waiting to see what's going to happen. There is the possibility that what comes from these hearings, what comes more important from these reports, is going to be so damning to so many people that it's going to create unrest in this country. And I would just like to leave you with an idea that maybe it's time for us to start, instead of thinking of the hatred and the bitterness and the anger It's time to start thinking of solutions. How can we make this country better? How can we heal ourselves? And what do we need to know that's going to make a difference, not only in our lives, but in the lives of every American? Think about it. Well, we're almost out of time. And I just want to say that it's, as always, it has been very special for me to spend this hour with you. And I look forward to seeing you again next week. You've been listening to the news magazine on the America Out Loud Network. I'm Alana Friedman, and this has been the Friedman Report.